Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, excerpts from the 2014 Tucson Festival of Books. Nuestras Raices, a program of the Pima County Library, sponsored the panel entitled Borderland Productions, Queer Migrations and Counter-Movements. Speakers include UA Professor of Gender and Women's Studies, Ethna Lubel, and Adela C. Licona, Associate Professor and Director of the Rhetoric, Composition, and the Teaching of English program at the University of Arizona. The panel explores how ongoing border policing shapes the experiences, struggles, and counter-movements of migrants, people of color, and queer activists. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. The presentations you see here are brought to you by the Nuestras Raices of Pima County Public Library. Our first presentation is Borderlands Productions, Queer Migrations, and Counter Movements. This panel will explore how ongoing border policing shapes the experiences, struggles, and counter movements of migrants, people of color, and queer activists. Each presentation will address how border policing produces norms that criminalize and exclude, and how these norms are challenged and resisted through coalition and cooperation. And now I'd like to introduce you to the moderator for this presentation, Assistant Professor in the English Department of the University of Arizona, Maritza Cardenas. Thank you, Elizabeth. Welcome, everyone, to the sixth annual Tucson Festival of Books. My name is Maritza Cardenas. We would like to thank Pima County Public Library for sponsoring this venue. Woohoo! <laughs> um, and now, without further ado, I would like to um, introduce our distinguished panel. Uh, so the first is Ethna Louvade, is, who is an assistant professor of gender and women's studies here at the University of Arizona. Her research interests include the examination of how the processes of migration, sexualities, and racialization constitute subjects. She has authored two books, the first, Entry Denied, Controlling Sexuality at the Border, shows how the U.S. border became a site not just for controlling female sexuality, but also for contesting, constructing, and renegotiating sexual identity. In her second book, Pregnant on Arrival, which was released in 2013, uh, Making the Illegal Immigrant, Ethna offers insight into how categories of immigrant legal status emerge and change, how sexual regimes figure in these processes, and how efforts to prevent illegal immigration redefine nationalist sexualist norms and associated racial, gender, economic, and geopolitical hierarchies. In addition, she has also been editor of several works, I'm just going to name a few here, uh, including a special issue of GLQ on queer migration, co-editor of A Global History of Sexuality, uh, another editor, co-editor of Queer Migration, Sexuality, U.S. Citizenship, and Border Crossings, and a special issue of Women's Studies International Forum on, quote, representing migrant women in Ireland and the EU. All of these books by these wonderful, wonderful scholars are available at your local Pima, Pima County Library, so please go check them out. Uh, without further ado, I give you your, your panelists. Good morning, and thank you all for be taking time to be here. I want to thank Maritza for being such a generous introducer of all of us. Um, we had a little contest this morning, and since I lost, I go first, but they're going to give lots of money to my Cayman's account, so I thought that was okay. I didn't mind. So the order is me, Adela, and then Karma. So um, I was going to talk to you a little from my second book that Maritza had mentioned, Pregnant on Arrival. Um, that book was published by the University of Minnesota Press in the fall. 
And I wrote the book because I was just very troubled by why do people think if you are a woman perceived as an immigrant and you are pregnant, why do people think you might be undocumented? And there was a lot of those kinds of discourses going around this state, going around California, and in many other places. I also wanted to know how did concerns about immigrant pregnancies and childbearing become the basis to expand laws and policies in ways that actually made more immigrants end up being designated as undocumented. So I was interested in how the fear is actually driving policy in ways that are very negative for immigrants and produce the very problem it claims it's, quote, solving. The book is basically kind of in conversation with two bodies of scholarship, and one of those bodies is the work on the social construction of the undocumented immigrant. That's kind of the academic way of saying it, but what it means basically is the idea we see lots of stuff in the media and from politicians that suggest undocumented people have, like, quote, bad characters and law-breaking tendencies, but that scholarship says that is absolutely not the case, that people are made to be undocumented as the U.S. keeps changing its policies in more and more draconian ways, and we can absolutely trace that out. And the other thing that shapes who is undocumented, and there's absolutely no doubt about this, is the histories of racism, of colonialism, and of global capitalism. The other kind of area of work this was in dialogue with is queer and sexuality studies, and particularly their insight that sexuality is one of the ways that societies both naturalize and enforce multiple kinds of inequalities, including gender, but also racial inequalities, class inequalities, discrimination against LGBTQ people. So the book brought those two in conversation to really ask, well, what's up with this whole story about pregnant immigrants? To debunk the myths about that, but to also document the damage that is being done by that kind of storytelling and policy making. The myth that pregnant immigrant women are arriving to have babies as part of a scam to get citizenship for their children and welfare benefits and residency for themselves has been prevalent for a couple of decades, including here in Arizona, as we probably all know pretty well. But it's also actually a myth that you can see in quite a few other countries, and that was interesting to me because I didn't know. Um, it's certainly really important in the Dominican Republic, in Singapore, in New Zealand, and also in the Irish Republic, which is where I ended up actually exploring how this was playing out. So it turns out the dynamics were pretty similar, um, and there are some differences, but my focus in this case was on the Irish Republic. I think in the U.S. people sometimes think of the Irish Republic as a place where people leave, and historically that is true. But for a brief period in the 90s, it was a country people were moving to. And that included people from the U.S., and that was for a couple of reasons. One was a big economic boom called the Celtic Tiger, um, which is now the Celtic Bust. Um, but at the time, there was a lot of migration. There was also people coming because of the kind of European countries were integrating and having free movement across 
across European borders. And the other reason for movement is people were looking for asylum. And this, in Ireland at this point, 12% of the population is from other countries. So it, there has been a visible shift in a very short period of time. And like here, one of the areas around which people's anxieties coalesced was around women having children. It was a little different how it played out because the anxiety focused on asylum seekers and an asylum seeker under the law is somebody who's seeking refuge because they've been persecuted or they're afraid of being persecuted on account of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. That's the legal definition. So if you might be persecuted and you're fleeing, you can seek refuge on those grounds. In Europe in the 90s, what was happening is European governments began to say, well, most of the people who say they need asylum are the scammers. So the discourse of undocumented immigrants was focused on people seeking asylum. And the argument, eh, they don't need asylum. They're just claiming it so they can enter our space so they can work. So that's a little bit different from how it plays out here. But it was also extremely similar because we should take what European governments were saying with like, you know, not just a grain of salt, but like five tons of salt. It was not accurate. Um, some of what they were doing is they were actually changing the rules to make sure people couldn't arrive to ask for asylum, or if they arrived, that their claims would be invalidated. So they were doing things like creating lists of, if you're from these countries, you couldn't possibly need asylum, as opposed to, tell me what happened to you and I will think about it. That's a very political decision. They were demanding evidence that was impossible, like if you are fleeing across many, many countries, you, you may have been on the death squad list, but you may not have a copy of that list. Why should you and how could you? And also, you probably should not carry that on your person. It would be very dangerous, but this is the kind of material they were asking for, and if people couldn't produce it, they're saying, oh, you must be just a scammer looking for work. So the way they changed the rules around asylum really meant people were were becoming constructed as undocumented even when they had ex extraordinary need for protection. Folks who did manage to make it to European spaces were mainly held in detention facilities or special parts of jails or offshored, kind of like the U.S. does with Guantanamo. Other countries also use offshoring. And the conditions were not good. It varied by the country, but, you know, certainly overcrowded, very stressful, poor conditions, you know, bad quality food, malnutrition, and people were kind of stuck in a limbo because you never knew when they might get around to your case. Um, this was extremely difficult for people. And, in, and this is also similar, I should say, to how the U.S. treats asylum seekers. So we see a global regime of handling asylum that way. And I'm just focusing on one country, but the lessons from that certainly apply in this country. In that context in Ireland, when immigrant women were coming seeking asylum, they would be routed into those conditions, but if they had a kid, they were allowed to exit the asylum system, apply to become legal residents, and get on with their lives. 
And that was fine for a while, but starting in 97, the discourse where you're used to here began to appear there. Politicians and the media in particular arguing, if women are doing that, they're scammers and cheaters who are abusing the system. I went to Ireland and I was kind of surprised. A taxi driver, like I just was taking a taxi and he started this whole story about like, oh, these scamming immigrant women and they have all these kids and I'm listening to him and going, what? What are you telling me? And he's like, and they have seven kids and it's all for welfare. And I'm like, I grew up in the Irish Republic and seven kids was normal. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, oh my God, like, what are the stories you're telling me and why are you telling me these stories? Like, how did immigrants become the people who you think are having lots of kids? Like, I don't get it. So I spent a summer really interviewing lots of people to try and figure out, like, well, what is going on? Are women really doing this? And it was quite difficult to do because the way it's set up, you really only have two options. Like, the options are, yeah, they're scammers and cheaters, or they're complete victims who need to be saved. And in the end, what I learned is, in fact, people's lives are not reducible to either of those stories. And I wanted to just share with you one story I collected in the course of my research from a student who was in my English class who in the book I call Katerina. She's from the country of Moldova, which actually has begun to appear on maps for the first time on television in the US with the Ukrainian crisis. It's a tiny little country that used to be part of Romania and is very close to the Ukraine. And it's also one of the poorest of the former Eastern Bloc countries. Katerina attended classes with her husband, Dimitri, a significantly younger man, and their newborn child. So she had arrived pregnant, she had had a kid, she seemed to fit the whole stereotype. Over time, I came to know Katerina as a tough, strong, and optimistic woman. Eventually, she told me she had been a political activist in her own country, as was Dimitri, and she was warned by members of the ruling party to stop her activities. When she became pregnant, she experienced medical complications and was admitted to a hospital for surgery so she could carry the pregnancy to term. The day after her surgery, a doctor checked that there was nobody else around. He was kind of looking around. He saw there was nobody. He slipped into her room. He told her he thought it was best for her to leave the country because she had many enemies. She believed he was trying to help, but his advice chilled her she realized she had been unconscious under the scalpel of doctors who knew something about but did not necessarily agree with her politics. They could have ended her pregnancy rather than helping her to carry the baby to term. Why did the doctor come to warn her, she wondered. Had he heard something against her was being planned? This happened after Katrina and Dimitri's home had been broken into, Dimitri had been beaten, and Katrina had been once more to stop her activism. It persuaded them it was time to leave. Friends helped them to hide among sealed wooden crates in a truck that was traveling abroad. They didn't know where the truck was going, but they expected it was probably going to Germany, Belgium, or maybe France. After lengthy travel, the truck stopped, and Dimitri crept out to look around and try to figure out where they were. He saw a harbor and a sign that said Dublin. He tried to remember where Dublin was, and he went back to the truck to ask Katrina, who was a geography teacher. Dublin, then we're in Ireland, she told him. 
It began to sink in. They were in Ireland. He was unhappy and wanted to get back on the truck, but she was too sick from the pregnancy and the recent surgery to continue. They had to get off. They had brought two bags, but one fell among the freight in the truck, and he couldn't retrieve it. He lost the passports, too, which slipped unnoticed from his packet. Together, they disembarked in Dublin and began seeking asylum through what was to become their fifth language, which was English. Their application was refused on the grounds they did not meet the international requirements. You are listening to excerpts from the 2014 Tucson Festival of Books on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Nuestras Raices, a program of the Pima County Library, sponsored the panel entitled Borderland Productions, Queer Migrations, and Counter Movements. In the course of my research, I talked to lots, lots, lots more people like Aurelia, who did not fit the framework of either the scammer or the victim, but whose lives are far more complex and whose lives and experience really can't be captured by either of those frameworks. Unfortunately, we do know politicians have been making policy based on these kinds of stereotypes. And in particular, they have been using the stereotype of immigrants as scammers to create policies organized around the idea of deterrence, which is you make things so miserable that people either are deterred from coming or once they get here, they undergo what is called a policy of attrition, which is every aspect of your being and your life is so painful that you leave. That's the policy of deterrence. The issue is that this does not work because it does not address the root causes that are driving global migration. And if the root causes are not addressed, then migration is going to continue because it reflects economic processes that are ongoing and that we do need to be dealing with. The policies don't stop immigration, but they are resulting in more and more people dying as they make it here. They're also expanding everyday racial profiling and rising rates of detention and lesbian and gay immigrants as supposed scammers, cheaters, and threats, which other of our panelists are going to be talking about, so I won't discuss it here. These stories draw on very long histories in the United States where white people have used sexuality to enforce racial dominance. Men have used sexuality to enforce patriarchy and heterosexuality. And middle class people have used sexuality to enforce and justify economic inequality. This is a quote from the book, Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America. They write, ever since the 17th century, European migrants to America have merged racial and sexual, sexual ideologies to differentiate themselves from Indians and blacks, to strengthen mechanisms of social control over slaves, and to justify the appropriation of Indian and Mexican lands, as well as to justify patriarchy, discrimination against lesbians and gay men, and scapegoating of the poor. In this particular moment, we see sexuality being particularly used to legitimize immigration control strategies that don't work because they don't address why migration is happening. At the same time, they are reinforcing and justifying other kinds of inequalities. And our panel was created around the idea that rather than buying into divisive rhetoric and participating in scapegoating immigrants as either scammers, cheaters, or victims, 
We are better served by learning more about one another and exploring how we can work together to support change that supports everybody. And I think the other panels, panelists will speak of aspects of that, and then we welcome hearing from you about how we might be able to think about that. Thank you. Next we have Adela Licona, who is an Associate Professor in Rhetoric, Composition, and the Teaching of English here at the University of Arizona. Her interdisciplinary research and teaching interests include borderlands rhetorics, cultural critical race, critical youth, sexuality and gender studies, social justice media, community literacies, action research, and public scholarship. Adela is also the co-founder of Feminist Action Research and Rhetoric, FAR, a group of progressive feminist scholars engaged in public scholarship and community dialogue. In addition, she is co-editor of the book, Feminist Pedagogy, Looking Back to Move Forward, and the author of Zines in Third Space, Radical Cooperation and Borderlands Rhetoric, which was released in 2012. I'm just going to show you some uh, examples of zines that I'll be talking about. Um, because I'm not sure that everybody knows what they are, but I'll, I hope to define them for you uh, in the talk. But I thought if I just showed some um, pretty interesting zines that I, that I got to study. Um, I want to start, though, by thanking uh, my friends and colleagues here today, and especially Elizabeth Soltero and Nuestros Raices. Um, when I sat down to prepare my remarks, um, I decided to share the story of how my book came to be, its roots, with some insights into my own. Um, I always begin, uh, when I speak about the book, in fierce appreciation to those zinesters who works, whose work animates zines in third space, radical cooperation, and borderlands rhetorics. Their work and their writing calls me always to keep it real and to risk putting myself visibly and vulnerably into my work. So here's some of the real stuff. While I was pursuing my doctorate in critical rhetorical studies and gender and women's studies, I was a single mother of two young daughters. I'm a first-generation queer Chicana scholar whose father didn't finish high school and whose mother only finished high school. I mention these things as salient to the substance of my book because they are. My parents valued and taught us to value formal education, but they also valued the education they received outside of school contexts, in their communities, their homes, from their elders, their work, from one another, from their f failures, and from their successes. So that's, that's part of the story that you'll see, I think, why the, the book was so meaningful to me. Um, often, though, while studying for my doctorate, I would find activities campus activities um, that the girls would have, uh, would give me an opportunity to read or write and the girls would be, avail themselves too. So after a weekend poetry workshop, um, my girls ran in and they told me, mommy, we're published authors, um, and that they'd written a zine. Well, I didn't know what zines were, and I was, it kind of blew my mind that my daughters could self-identify as published authors because here I was, I'd been writing for years, and I was still struggling with that identity. Could I call myself an author? And here was, you know, a, a seven and a nine-year-old telling me that they were authors. So um, again, I was inspired and moved in my research in a certain direction. I'll take a shortcut here to tell you that I ended up doing my research at Duke University that at that time had the largest holding of zines, or that was my understanding, they had the largest holding of zines in the U.S. And I had to make my way through boxes and, and slowly I came to find uh, queer people of color zines and I fell in love. I haven't stopped reading them ever since. Um, my book though is about also Borderlands Rhetorics, 
third spaces as well as zines. Not all zines, of course, because while they, have several they share several characteristics, they also vary widely in their formats, their politics, themes, languages, as well as their distribution channels. All zines from skinhead and suburban titles to those catering to anarchists, queers, lesbians, and riot girls respond in one way or another to dominant ideologies um, as experienced and understood by zine authors or zinesters. Zines can be single authored and they're sometimes anonymously authored. They're most often explicitly committed to a free and diverse press. I focus on feminist, queer, and queer of color zines in my work um, that are co-authored. I was really interested in the ways in which zines were explicitly building communities of authors as well as of activists. Um, I was especially interested in the ways in which these zinesters understood and confronted the structures of dominations and the logics that sustained them, those structures that were relevant to their lives in particular. Despite the immediacy of the zine content that I'm sharing with you today, the genre isn't new. Some researchers argue that revolutionary pamphlets in the U.S. are zines precursors, while others um, find links to fan newsletters like sci-fi uh, uh, fiction fanzines. Those are uh, prevalent in the 30s. And then punk manifestos and scrapbooks of the 70s and riot girl zines of the 90s. Still others trace the emergence of zines to um, um, alternative of color, feminine in queer presses, as well as to other liberation movements. While they can be sleek productions, zines are often put together in a raw, cut-and-paste style, copied and traded or sold for a nominal fee. The trades that occur between zines interrupt, for me, um, the exciting thing about learning how they were traded is the interruption to purchasing imperatives in, in stages of capitalism. And that's a, a, an exciting part of how zines circulate and uh, make meaning across communities. They build communities and they disseminate information as well as grassroots literacies. Um, also, they create dialogues across one zine to another. That was something that I, that, I found, that I found really inspiring and helpful to me as I imagined how I would build uh, communities. So a lot of what I learned from the zines inspires how I move uh, as an academic, as a scholar. The, the zines that I introduce in, uh, in my book are those that advocate for change based on identified affinities and intersections of imagination, as well as of oppression, injustice, and inequity. And here I want to read, um, address rather my reading of zines through a borderlands framework, my recognition of zines as third space sites. The zines I studied challenged, authorized, and expert um, knowledges and normative discourses, desires, structures, and practices. They are both playful and serious. Zinesters draw from academic knowledge as well as experiential knowledges across generations, again, something I, I valued that, that resonated with me. They consider how division creates conditions that normativize notions of the authentic and the legitimate, and they play with those notions throughout the zines that I studied. Borderlands, borderlands rhetorics then transcend or otherwise subvert false and limiting dichotomies to represent non-dominant, non-normative, queer stories, peoples, desires, practices. I've been exploring the implications of a borderlands perspective um, and framework for understanding and reading the world and for creating knowledge for some time. I was born and raised on the El Paso Juarez border, and I mention this again because it's salient to how I read, um, how I read the world and how I, how I write and how I understand. Now, it doesn't mark me with some essential difference, but it gives me a perspective on history, on place, and on the production of knowledge, um, as always, contestable and even contradictory. I mean, I grew up with a river with at least two names, really three or more, right? Rio Bravo, Rio Grande, and the Navajo have names for that river. Um, 
um, and that that place then I think influenced how I how I certainly how I write, but how I understand and make meaning. And that's the same the same kind of practices that I understood myself engaged in at that time are the practices I saw many of the uh, queer and, and uh, of color zinesters that I studied. So, so this way of being moves me to, or rather understanding, moves me to understand always imposed divisions as sometimes deadly operations of power, something that I think Ethna was talking about and I know Karma will. Bar borders are spaces then where powerful forces have um, imposed, represented, and misrepresented historical truths. And so I understand borderlands as always complicated spaces of contestation, collision, and crash. I also see evidence of them as generative and productive spaces, creative. Borderlands rhetorics as they're deployed in zines have the potential to reconstruct stories, places, histories, and experiences in such a way as not to only expose misrepresentations, but to uncover distinct perspectives and even produce new knowledges. And there for me is the excitement of the zines that I got to study. And I had a lot of joy in the research I was doing, by the way. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to excerpts from the 2014 Festival of Books on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Nuestras Raices, a program of the Pima County Library, sponsored the panel entitled Borderland Productions, Queer Migrations, and Counter-Movements. The panel explores how ongoing border policing shapes the experiences, struggles, and counter-movements of migrants, people of color, and queer activists. Speakers included UA Professor of Gender and Women's Studies, Ethne Lubade, and Adela Silicona, Associate Professor and Director of the Rhetoric, Composition, and the Teaching of English Program at the University of Arizona. This has been part one of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shocker. <laughs>